Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Welcome to episode 98 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, the Mausoleum Wanderer Gottlieb. What's up, man? Hi, Gerald. Uh, Hello. You know, just, just spending my my week hanging out in mausoleums, casting mausoleum secrets all week uh, in preparation for my article that came out today about a new version of Living End. Modern's so funny. You can spend so many hours going down these rabbit holes and you might be rewarded with absolutely nothing for the like 50, 60 hours you put in trying to figure out this one idea. I think this deck is pretty good, maybe not like format changing, but at least interesting and pretty good. But I also could have used this time to play standard or gain mastery over a modern deck, which is very clearly good enough and is going to exist forever. It's it's so hard to distribute your time effectively in modern. It is. I I don't know what is the best course of action. You see so many people who are modern experts, like you said, just picking up one deck and mastering it. And... I don't know. I just I have the modern bucket list that keeps growing larger and larger and larger, and it doesn't seem like there's anything I can do to actually whittle it down. You know, because because yeah. like you said, the, the more I play with these weird decks, then it's like oh, I splice that onto another idea, and you just keep going. So it is basically endless. Yeah, and the decks are bottomless too because there's so much customizability and like toolboxes and you know small tweaks. Which when you're dealing, I, I mean, in the case of this one deck where you're you're dealing with a tutor small tweaks make all the difference in the world. They can completely change matchups and like how much of a silver bullet list you need to have. All these questions, which you can easily spend like hundreds of hours refining a deck like this. But there's also another hundred decks out there that you have to be cognizant of the whole time. So, and on top of this, we have a standard format going on that we're trying to gain mastery of as well. So definitely challenging to assign time appropriately. Yeah, I don't know when the next time you're playing Modern is, but my next tournament is Grand Prix Atlanta the week before the Pro Tour, and I'm pretty locked into just playing Arclight Phoenix. Okay. I mean, at least you have a place you know you want to go. I'm playing Modern this weekend uh, over at Mox Boarding House for the charity tournament they have going on, which I don't mind plugging at all. I always love plugging charity, and you're doing something with that too, right? Yeah, I'm playing in the main event. It's like the eight-person kind of invite-only thing if... Y'all are active on Twitter. You've probably seen a lot of that. We did a, a build-your-own-block-constructed thing. There's a Guilds of Ravnica draft and maybe something else I forget. But it, it's it's going to be wild. Nice. So I'll, I'll get to watch that between my rounds of Modern this weekend. Uh, also considering GP Atlanta, maybe, uh, probably not, but have GP Portland coming up at the end of the year. So that's my next big Modern tournament for sure. Um, so probably it behooves me to focus on Standard, but... Modern's so interesting. Like, there's so many things to explore over there. It's like this shiny distraction that keeps pulling me aside. Yeah, and GRN gave Modern a bunch of sweet tools, too. It did. It really did. There's a lot of stuff there, and I think people are only beginning to unpack it. Because the assumption always is with the new set, it's like, oh, this won't touch Modern that much. You know, maybe a card here, a card there. But there's a lot of stuff that deserves Modern consideration in the set. Right, and people are hyping up Assassin's Trophy, and it's like, yeah, okay, that does stuff for sure. But it is the cards like Mausoleum Secrets and 
uh, Arclight Phoenix, Runaway Steamkin, things like that, that are likely going to cause the biggest shakeups. Right, cards that break in bizarre context. Like modern is all about bizarre context. When you go back across 15 years of cards, there's so many weird things going on. And every single time you add a new wrinkle to a weird thing, it just might break. So you have to go in and check back on it all the time. Oh, yeah. So uh, forgive me because I've been sick the last few days and I'm going to try and remain high energy and not be sniffling all the time. But uh, no promises there. And uh, we do have a lot of standard stuff to talk about. So have, have you been PTQing? I haven't been PTQing. I ended up with like things to do on the weekend that have pulled me away from PTQs. I have played a ton of standard though. I've basically been preparing like I was going to PTQ and indeed was ready to PTQ in both instances. And then my wife asked me to like go out to the countryside and I I did so. I I tend to prioritize those things over PTQs at this juncture of my life. Um, But I feel plugged into the format 100% without a doubt. Word. So uh, Golgari top deck at the moment at the very least and I, I think that should probably make you pretty happy. I mean, you've been singing the praises of Golgari basically since the set was beginning to get previewed, and uh, now we're here. We have a bunch of PTQs where there's like six Golgari decks in top eight, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. So what's your take on that? Uh, it's unsurprising in a lot of ways. Golgari, I think, mostly got the best cards from this set, and the thing that has surprised me about Golgari is that at this point I would start to think we would be congealing around a kind of default list. I don't think you can say that at all about Golgari. I think there's so many questions to answer as to the optimal build and quite frankly there may be no optimal build. There may be like three optimal builds of Golgari all of which are very much tier one doing you know similar things but certainly with tweaks enough to distinguish them from other versions of the deck and i really want to get into a lot of those like nitty-gritty choices because i think they're super interesting and actually uh are very impactful for how this deck is positioned and how to attack this deck which is a huge part of the equation because we have our target now that's what these first weeks are all about that you let things kind of settle down a little bit let pieces come together and then the format really starts to take shape when you find a target and golgari is unquestionably the target Absolutely. So I think the main thing that these Golgari decks have in common is that there is a reasonable amount of interaction, ways to remove opposing permanence, and then their creature base is largely one based on value. You see a lot of explore creatures, sometimes things like Plague Crafter or uh, weird things like Midnight Reaper. Golgari Finebroker is a pretty popular card, either with or without the Eldest Reborn, and uh, Deadweight kind of factors in there to some degree also. And then the most recent versions have been very Planeswalker heavy, which is Mm. another huge thing that we could talk about in standard where uh, at the beginning of the format, it didn't seem like Planeswalkers were very popular at all. And now they're just huge. Yeah, an incredibly important part of Golgari's plan. Going back to the creature base real quick before I hop into Planeswalkers, it's so funny how like you were very excited about District Guide, and I believe rightfully so. I mean, District Guide is still an important card in this format. It does a lot of things. Um, you, st- you still see one-ofs popping up all over the place. And uh, in some instances, I think decks should go harder. In some instances, maybe you're better served by not playing District Guide. An interesting and important card. But what's telling about these Golgari decks is every card is District Guide. That's what it, Every card is just like value stapled on, and be it 
even mopey things like Seeker Squire and uh, Merfolk Branchwalker, th these are trying their best to be district guides. Everyone wants to be district guide. And we have a critical mass of this effect. And it's leading to hyper, hyper consistent game plans for the Golgari deck. And that's part of the reason why it's been able to ascend very quickly to the top tier is that it gets to do its thing in almost every single game it plays. And that's a huge point of variance eliminated from the typical way you play magic, where I hope I get the right mix of lands and spells. Now, basically, if you get two lands, you're a very high percentage chance to be able to snowball that into more lands and be able to execute the top end of your game plan. Yeah, I think just being able to use your mana every turn, even if it's as something as minuscule as a Seeker Squire in the early game, it's just, it's strictly better than not doing anything, right? Mm -hmm, so sure. the fact that, they get to play this solid curve of cards that accumulate value, allow them to hit all their land drops, use all their mana every turn, and then they have a bunch of powerful stuff at the top end, like a bunch of different ways to gain card advantage. And Vraska Relic Seeker is one of the biggest finishers. Uh, Fine Finality keeps everything going too. I mean, yeah, like you said, this deck is just so good at doing its thing, doing its thing consistently and not running out of gas, whereas I think a lot of standard decks currently have that problem. Yeah, spot on. And obviously, you know, like you said, the Planeswalkers are a tremendous part of that as well. Just endless fountains of value for a deck like this. And uh, kind of some surprising inclusions of Planeswalkers. I don't think people, for the most part, were super high on Veraska, Golgari Queen. It's starting to make its presence felt in these deck lists. And similarly, Vivian Reed, a card that I know come course at 19 spoiler season, I was not particularly high on. That card just does everything you need it to do. Any kind of, basically every time I start targeting Golgari, the problem I run across is Vivian Reed. It answers so many things that the deck would usually be vulnerable to very, very efficiently. Yeah, it's, it is tough. Uh, I've, I've been playing a decent amount of Jeskai. And while I think Jeskai is one of the few decks in the format that can actually stand up to Golgari, there are just certain things like where if, if you're building your deck around playing Niv-Mizzet, for example, Vivian Reed is just one of the most embarrassing cards to have on the opposing side of the table where you invest six mana into this thing. It's supposed to at least give you some value and then they just remove it cleanly and still have a Planeswalker in play. It's just really gross. Right. I, I'm super high on Niv-Mizzet. I have been from the beginning and honestly still am. But in the context of the Golgari matchup, it tends to be problematic. There's so many outs they have, be it Chupacabras, uh, Vivian Reed, Vraska, all these things answer it very cleanly, very efficiently, and it comes up a lot. And my Mizzets are constantly underwhelming against Golgari. Yeah, so at this point, I'm looking for alternative ways to attack them. I think Expansion Explosion is a good one. Teferi yeah. is still just as good as it has been, and... Not even in the context of Jeskai, but in the context of Standard in general, I think you just need ways to ignore their value creatures. I think that's a big part of it. And having something like Deafening Clarion to sweep away like three of their little creatures, I think is a big step in the right direction because you can't afford to trade one for one with every Seeker Squire and Merfolk Branchwalker that they play. Like you're just going to get buried. Mm -hmm. Spot on. Yeah, you need a catch up mechanism and uh, decks without it. Uh, I, I don't know. You're kind of in a tough spot right now. You need to get them dead before they can execute their game plan, but they do so much in the early game. It, it's very challenging to do, to do so. Yeah, I definitely agree. So most of these lists have the value creatures. I think it's not ideally where I would want to be uh, just because the cards are fairly weak in general. But, you know, like I said, it doesn't really matter. You know, they're 
they're just these things with nice little ETBs that make it so you're not necessarily down a card. You get to use your mana. And then all the Explore creatures also combo really well with Wild Growth Walker. So that gives you a little bit of a leg up against the red decks where not a lot of decks have a card like Wild Growth Walker that is so clean and so effective against them. Like, I, I think it is one of the big reasons why Golgari is so strong. Yeah, it's definitely cutting off that angle of attack, which I think would otherwise probably be successful. Uh, I think Mono Red would be a, a great a great way to target this deck in the absence of Wild Growth Walker. It's a very important card to have in the sideboard. And I actually find that my primary motivation for including the Explore Creatures at this point has become Wild Growth Walker. Even if it's not in my main deck, I still think it's so important for being able to to shift against the red decks uh, in post-board games that I feel almost obligated to include the Explore Creatures in my deck as a concession to that card more than anything else. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I, I think it's such an important part of your plan. And even though red might not appear to be super well positioned, I mean, I think it got a little bit boost when a little bit of a boost when people realized how good Experimental Frenzy is. But now you look mm -hmm. at these Golgari decks with Assassin's Trophy, Vivian Reed, uh, Big Vraska, they just have a lot of incidental ways to actually take care of the enchantment. And then uh, things like Gitu Lava Runner just do not stand up well. It's a Seeker Squire, but yeah, like red is always going to be prevalent. It's always going to be part of the metagame. And even if it is not supremely well positioned or experimental frenzy is not the best it's ever been or whatever, I do think that people are still going to play it because it's still a solid deck. But just having wild growth walker is a thing that you can turn to super easily, I think is a huge boon. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I would love to pick your brain on some of the other, I don't know if controversial is the right word there's some other creatures that don't necessarily make the cut in every single golgari list and i would love to get your thoughts on them uh the first one being doom whisperer doom whisperer was a four of in the first place ptq list from this past week uh, a card that i personally have been very high on uh, that being said, I am recognizing some weaknesses of Doom Whisperer. We talked a lot about Niv-Mizzet. Doom Whisperer has a lot of the same things going on. There's a, a ton of very clean answers in these decks, be it Vivian, be it Ravenous Chupacabra, even getting Assassin's Trophy doesn't feel particularly good. You kind of have to cash it in for value right away and can do so, which is the reason I think Doom Whisperer is able to see any play. Uh, it, it does have a non-managated ability that you're able to get immediate value from. But I know some people are low on the card and don't think it belongs in this archetype. What's your take on Doom Whisperer right now? Well, realistically, it depends on what your plan is. I don't think that having the plan of like all of my cards either are a direct answer to something that you play that's threatening or it gives me value. And then you also have this random like five mana six, six flyer in your deck. It just seems completely out of place to a deck that is otherwise just seeking to accumulate value and win that way. Uh, but I do think that there is a version probably similar, similar to what you posted initially with Elvish Rejuvenator, Lanor Elves, stuff like that, that just ramps into these big things. And uh, with, Rekindling Phoenix being one of the most threatening cards against Golgari, I think Doom Whisperer is a very good answer to it. Mm -hmm. And I do think that if you have enough threatening cards and enough ramp that just trying to play a 6-6 six -six is a reasonable plan against Golgari. Because if, if you play it on like turn four and they don't immediately have a Chupacabra for it, it's things are going to go well for you, you know? And even if they do, you're probably so far ahead that you can spend some time to cast Find, get it back, and eventually it'll stick, right? 
Right. I mean, fine changes everything with regards to like how sticky you need your threats to be. When you're getting them back over and over, you can you can let them die and still come out profitable on the exchange. If you're generating board presence across your first three turns and use that to ramp into Doom Risper on turn four, and let's say you're on the draw and then they're able to answer with Vivian Reed and kill your Doom Whisperer, well, you've only traded at parity at that point, assuming you have your board presence and are able to then attack Vivian Reed. Um, and you've assuming you've presumably gotten activations out of your Doom Whisperer as well that have either brought you closer to the next Doom Whisperer or, you know, put some value in your graveyard. So that trade doesn't really disturb me all that much. I think you can come out ahead in those situations a lot of the time. Um, but I, I basically agree with you. You need to have some slant towards the early game. You need to be doing things besides just like Branch Walker, Jade Light Ranger. You need to be ramping in some way that's meaningful and and establishing some early board presence and really being able to take advantage of the the clock that Doom Whisperer is going to bring to the table. Right. And Lanowar Elves is just a card that not a lot of these school guardian decks are playing, but indispensable. See, I think we, it's indispensable. Well, I I don't know. I mean, I think that if you are trying to make a case for uh, just uh, accumulating value is what I want to be doing. And if you're playing four Seeker Squire, four Merfolk Branch Walker, maybe some Wild Growth Walkers, you don't necessarily benefit from the ramp of Llanowar Elves, and you don't like drawing that card on turn eight, right? But I do think that it is very telling that the decks that got first and second both have four copies of Llanowar Elves, which I think gives you a pretty big leg up in the mirror match. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a huge edge in the mirror. And I also think that I, I would like to see these decks do more to profit from Llanowar Elves. I think while I'm on board with Varaska Golgari Queen, I think it's a very good card. It deserves a slot in these decks. It cleans up a lot of problems you could otherwise have. I also think that Karn is underplayed in this archetype. And I'm surprised to not see more people lean on Karn, especially in conjunction with Llanowar Elves. And if you're doing things like Druid of the Cowl, where you have further ways to ramp on subsequent turns, then I'm really into Karn. Uh, guaranteeing you have a turn three Planeswalker is a really big deal. And it becomes less of a big deal with Frasca. It can still work. You can still get value from it. Don't get me wrong. And there are spots where that will also pull you ahead. But I think I like Karn a little bit better in that slot right now. Yeah, I think Karn is way better than four mana Frasca. Mm -hmm. Un unless there is really some specific three mana or less permanent that you need to get rid of as an engine karn is so much superior yeah I, i'm with you the the thing that keeps bringing me back to i mean basically my split right now in my particular brand of golgari which doesn't tell you a lot with all the other cards but still i'll i'll disclose it anyway it, it it's two karn one vraska and the main reason i find myself unable to get completely away from Vraska is things like search for Ascanta, which I, I think is an important card in the format still. But honestly, you do have tons of other outs to it, be it Vivian or Assassin's Trophy. Uh, however you want to deal with search, you have other ways to do so. You're not reliant on Vraska. Sure, it's a nice play, but maybe Karn's even just better in that spot. Just generating value right away is worth so much more than actually answering right away. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, I, it just seems so much stronger in these mirrors where you don't actually have to be sacrificing your permanence. You get to keep your lands and your creatures that can then attack their planeswalkers. And mm -hmm. Karn is just like so much better in multiples too, which is a reason why I would highly recommend that you just play three Karn and no four mana Vraska. 
because once they deal with your first card and having the second to immediately get one of the cards with the silver counter, I think is huge. Yeah, I think you could talk me into that. It, it's certainly been close at this point. Um, yeah, uh, underplayed is my assessment of Karn right now. There should be more in these lists. Yeah, just Planeswalkers in general, I think, are so strong. And uh, the the rise of Golgari is definitely a big reason for that. I mean, these decks do have some Assassin's Trophies, but for the most part, they are really lacking in Vraska's Contempts. And... I don't know. I mean, I, I get that. I do think that at the moment, Contempt doesn't have a lot of high-value targets. The red decks aren't really leaning on Rekindling Phoenix, at least in game one. And Contempt is a little bit clunky, and you can't afford to have too many dead cards against Control, too. So I get it, but I do think that going forward, you're probably going to need to have more Contempts, especially as people start playing like eight Planeswalkers in their Golgari decks. Right. And I also think, as you keep mentioning, Red needs to shift to Rekindling Phoenix. I think they have to make that move if they're going to find success. Red decks need to get bigger. Uh, time for low-to-the-ground Red decks has passed. They have been efficiently answered. And that's often Red's role, right? It has those first two weeks where it's as low-to-the-ground as possible. You can't do anything against it. It runs you over. It steals a tournament. And then people make the appropriate concessions with things like Wild Growth Walker, which is often unbeatable uh, for, for those decks in any kind of high numbers. And again, keep in mind, find finality, recycling the wild growth walkers over and over. You have basically unlimited wild growth walkers at this point. Yeah, uh, Lava and, Coil is the one card that kind of gets you. Right, right. Lava Coil is good for sure. Um, but still to the point, I, I, Red has to adapt. It, it needs to do more. It needs to get bigger. And Rekindling Phoenix should probably be a big part of that. Yeah, I definitely agree. The question is, where do you go from there? I mean, Demanding Dragon is pretty weak against all the value stuff, all the Chupacabras and whatnot. Uh, Siege Gang Commander is okay. I, I do think that it is pretty good. And it, it just seems to me like maybe you need to splash a color. I don't know. What color are you looking to right now? Like, uh, what, what, what effect do you feel like you need? Yo, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I just know that the red decks are a little bit short, right? It's like you, you want to play... Uh, Steamkin, Chain Whirler, Rekindling Phoenix, and then what? I mean, I, I tried uh, Jeskai Midrange with okay. Chain Whirler. I think this was like the Angel of Death version from the PTQ, that top 32'd. And I do think it's good against Golgari, but mostly weaker than Jeskai Control against a lot of other stuff. So it is very weird for me to make this leap of like, okay, here's my Mono Red Flame of Kel deck. I think this is just worse than Jeskai Control. Like, that that is... <laughs> That is a lot of different leaps, but uh, that is that's kind of where I ended up, you know. Yeah, I mean, you did your due diligence. You worked through the problem. You you put forth your solutions, and that's where you came. So you can't you can't really fault the process. It's where it brought you. Yeah. So, uh, I don't think that there is a good reason to be a specific version of Golgari at the moment. I think it is, like you said earlier, just like, you know, make sure you have a plan, stick to it, etc. cetera. Uh, it, it is weird that with Golgari doing well and winning tournaments, people are not necessarily just copying the first place list, which mm. I, I don't know. I like that. I like that people are able to think past like, oh, this person won the tournament, therefore their, their deck is the best, right? Like people are just like, oh, well, Autumn is very smart and I trust their judgment. Like, let's see what they're playing, right? Yeah, and that's a great approach to magic tournaments is just trusting Autumn, I think. Uh, oh, yeah. They've obviously been on a tremendous run. And I like this deck list quite a bit. 
uh, this is a, a very nice looking deck list. And really, I, th I think Autumn, along with uh, Jadine and Emma, are the people who I give credit to really maximizing Vivian Reed in the Golgari decks. And I love that approach. I, I think it fundamentally changed these decks and made them much better. Yeah, and now Vivian is 20 plus tickets on Magic Online, whereas before people thought it was not playable, you know? So. Yep, yeah, things have changed. Oh yeah, so one of the, the big things I like, uh, especially about Autumn's deck, is the three Carnage Tyrants in the sideboard. Mm. And to capitalize on that Doom Whisperer plan, the version of Golgari I've been playing recently has... I started with three Carnage Tyrants, now I'm down to two, I think, just because I had too many six drops, but... It is just actually trying to stick a big threat and make it matter. Because not only is Carnage Tyrant one of your best cards against control, they have maybe two answers to it between Settle the Wreckage or Cleansing Nova. Uh, Crackling Drake can block, but hopefully you have a way to clear the way. And uh, Waffle Top of 5 0 a league with Star of Extinction in his sideboard. But like, mm -hmm. they have so few answers, but also just the Golgari Mirror doesn't have a lot of answers either. Right. That's that's the key point that I finally came to the conclusion this week. And, you know, I've been very high on Azoni and basically playing Azoni in that six drop slot a lot. And I think it still does have a place. Azoni is a different card than Carnage Tyrant, but they're competing for the same slot in a lot of ways. And honestly, even Verasco Golgari Queen competing for that slot, I'm leaning Carnage Tyrant right now. And I would probably, you know, you said you got a little crowd at the six drop slot, so you trim the Carnage Tyrant. I would trim the Vraska first because Carnage I, Tyrant is so good in the mirror as well as against control. Yeah, I had I had three Tyrant to Vraska because I was trying to do big monster things, but Vraska Relic Seekers is kind of too good not to play. Like she's mm -hmm. just so good in so many spots, and I think I would rather have a mix rather than four Carnage Tyrants. But maybe that's wrong. I don't know. Maybe we're supposed to just be like Dino ramping at this point. Who knows? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is that I think if you're if you're maximizing your mana via Elves and Elvish Rejuvenator, then I think you're more incentivized to go Carnage Tyrant over Vraska because there are outs to Vraska, um, very yeah. clean outs. There's fewer to Carnage Tyrant. And I feel like you come out ahead on the Carnage Tyrant ramp plan way more often than you come out ahead on the Vraska Relic Seeker ramp plan. No, that's, that's completely legit. I mean, now I just kind of want to build decks with four Carnage Tyrants and see what happens. I have been trending that way for a while now. I, I do not yet know if they're good, but Carnage Tyrant seems incredibly well positioned. And actually, this is also informing the way I'm now building control decks because I anticipate people will come to the same conclusion. And we can save that for later. We'll get into other decks, but uh, I'll, I'll talk about that when we come back around to Jeskai Control. Well, uh, I mean, do, what else do we have to cover with Golgari itself? I mean, we like Vivian, we like Carnage Tyrant. Maybe those aren't necessarily the same the same decks, the same game plan, because Vivian and Six Man of Raska kind of lead you down this value path, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas yep. Doom Whisperer Fine Brokers type stuff, yeah. Right. And then Doom Whisperer Carnage Tyrant is kind of like its own separate package where you're just trying to create a a winning battlefield position and stick a threat and everything. Yeah, I think that's the key thing you need to take away is you have to think about how your package is working together. Like what are you actually attempting to accomplish and what best furthers those goals? And look, you can pretty much answer that question however you want at this point. Golgari has the tools to do absolutely everything. You can build this deck in a million different ways, but just make sure you're doing more. We joked last week, this is 
uh, Golgari trade binder. That's what we called it, right? Yeah. Make sure you're not doing that. Don't grab your favorite Golgari cards. Make sure there is a cohesive plan and all of these cards are snowballing towards each other, uh, leading you to execute what you see as your end game. Exactly. Well, let's but, let's talk about Golgari versus Control then. Okay. And the the role of Carnage Tyrant. So Control decks have basically been in two forms. It's either Esper Control or Jeskai Control, correct? Right. And both of these are ways to play with Teferi that don't rely on you playing with four copies of Meandering River in your deck. Yeah, which is a fairly painful thing to do. Um, but I'm doing it right now. Because... So you're, what? You're playing straight blue-white? No, I, I'm playing Jeskai still. Okay, okay. But I am splashing very lightly for expansion explosion which is not at all where i thought i'd be going but i'm concerned about carnage tyrant i think it should see an uptick in play uh it has seen an uptick in play and that was really where i found myself getting into problematic situations when i was playing jeskai if i i think jeskai in default mode against golgari in default mode whatever that may be at this point uh you know a carnage tyrant a lower number of Carnage Tyrant in Golgari, I think you're completely fine. I think the matchup's close, maybe even leaning a little bit Jeskai's way. Uh, not dramatically, but a little bit. But when things push really hard to the Carnage Tyrant side of things, that's when I started getting in trouble. And when my opponent was chaining Carnage Tyrant and finding Carnage Tyrant, I just couldn't compete. And I really needed to lean hard into Settle. But when you lean really hard into Settle and you lose access to Expansion Explosion, you lose that kind of explosive reach aspect of the deck, which is very, very important in this matchup. So I started splashing that side of things instead. And I I don't know how good it is yet. I still need to do more work on it. But it's just where my head's at right now. I I think Carnage Tyrant is becoming a problem, and I think you need to make concessions to address it. Like you said, these decks are coming to the table with two answers to Carnage Tyrant. That's not going to be acceptable come the end of this week. No, it's not. I mean, I like what Wafotapa did where he built his deck with that in mind, like Carnage Tyrant and Banefire specifically. And I played some Jeskai and uh, Josh Joe was playing a bunch of Jeskai and he would always just come back to me like, all right, you know, beat beat this deck, beat this deck, beat this deck, lost to Banefire. Beat this deck, beat this deck, beat this deck, lost to Carnage Tyrant. He's mm-hmm. just, you know, it was just back and forth, like losing to uncounterable stuff and that was it. And Wafotapa had Revitalize, which is one dub instant gain three life draw card. And he had crackling Drake and he had star of extinction. So like he was very cognizant of those cards. And the, one of the things that Cho kept harping on was just like, I want to cut settle the wreckage so badly because it just fuels my opponent's bane fires. Yeah. So if I'm going to go down this route, then I need to have a very clear plan for bane fire. And that's harder to do. Uh, I don't don't know. I think Shalai is good. Shalai is good. Shalai is enough. I mean, it's not enough, but it's good. Okay. I, I really do think that Crackling Drake is probably the answer. It's just Jeskai can't afford to keep in too much removal, or Golgari can't afford to keep in too much removal against Jeskai. But once you have Crackling Drake, they kind of have to, and it is a lot easier to like play Crackling Drake with Counterspell Mana up than it is to try and hold on to like your one Cleansing Nova against a deck with four Duresses. No, that's very true. What do you think about Shield Mare? Do you think that's a card that deserves to see play? I really don't see it very often, but I've seen it pop up a little bit in some 5-0 lists. Uh, is, is this just in general? In basically these control archetypes as a way to mitigate the damage that Banefire can do out of nowhere. Pads uh, the total a little bit. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I think that's fine. I think revitalize is fine. Uh, I, th I think I would rather just have something like Shalai. It just seems so much more impactful to have a blocker and a thing that just gives you hexproof. Mm -hmm. I, I currently have both in my sideboard. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll see where I fall on that. But yeah, Banefire is a concern for sure. And I think you need to, uh, you know, make some concessions to it. Dude, let's just build like Dino Ramp, Wayward Swordtooth, Carnage Tyrant, Banefire, Experimental Frenzy. Like a Frenzy Swordtooth is nice. Yeah, I've seen stuff like this floating around. I'm sure you have too. Uh, we're starting to see some almost mono green Experimental Frenzy decks and weird wild stuff. Like I said, we're only touching the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Experimental Frenzy. Uh, I don't know if this Carnage Tyrant Banefire thing is the way to go, but I mean, maybe it is. If the format becomes polarized enough, then that's very, very exploitative um, of the two top decks. And you could see that certainly generating some traction and being decent. Yeah, I think just ignore the the small stuff. Like stop trying to play like Pelt Collector, Steel Leaf Champion, whatever. And mm -hmm. you can have things like Sark and Vivian, which are good with Frenzy, you know, because they manipulate the top cards of your deck and everything. Right. Wayward Swordtooth with Frenzy is incredible. And then all you're trying to do is play Carnage Tyrant because once you get to that point, a lot of the things that you did up until then are just kind of irrelevant. It's like whether or not your Carnage Tyrant lives or dies. Yeah, that is very true. All right, we'll put that on the, the Tabru list. So many Tabrus right now. I, I have them come up every single day. In like, all formats. Maybe I should explore this. Yeah, in every format. And I guess that's great. Uh, it's not leading to me finding any one archetype that I necessarily, necessarily want to play at GP New Jersey come next weekend. But uh, yeah, it, it's been fun to explore for sure. It's fine, man. I'll post my, my Jersey deck list. I'm not going, but I'll post my deck list on, on the Patreon for you. Nice, nice. I I'm sure you. that'll it'll just be me reading that, not our thousand other Patreons who will also benefit from such a deck list. Well, right. But, you know, it's it's mainly for you. And okay. re realistically, I don't think that we've ever registered even close to the same deck in a tournament ever, so. Uh, I think going back a while, we probably often registered the same deck list. But recently, no, we've we've not registered the same 75. Dude, I was even on Jeskai for two weeks. Where were you? I, I The deck list we sent to our Patreon last week, we both sent Jeskai. I think I was only maybe a card off from your main deck. I had a different sideboard plan then. Okay. But otherwise, I, we were very much on the same page. Hell yeah. Uh, so what, what else? You, have you tried the Crackling Drakes? I haven't actually gotten around to trying them because I was too enamored with building Golgari decks, but no, I, I honestly haven't. And I, I know I was resistant at first, but I, once you get deafening clarion in the mix, you can very clearly see the benefit of going down that road. It's just like, it's very difficult to keep this card alive against everyone. I mean, at least in game four one. targets. Yeah. In they're game only one. four targets. They're going to get blown out all the time. And, I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm a hundred percent buyer. I think in uncontested situations, you'll often uh, be able to achieve your goals via crackling Drake and trading one for one is fine, right? Cause you got a card off of it, unless it's a core piece of your strategy. And I think in a lot of instances, these decks are relying on crackling Drake to bail them out against things like carnage tyrant. I've seen people suggest no crackling Drake is my out to carnage tyrant. And I understand what you're saying. It can have six power and it can black, block a carnage tyrant uh but is it going to ever realistically i'm not as sure about that 
Yo, if if they have to keep in a bunch of removal spells, that is fine with me. But their removal spells can come attached to value and they can be diverse, right? They can be Assassin's Trophy for your Teferis. They can be Chupacabras and still generate some board presence. So they're not just a total blank in the absence of creatures. I, I get what you're saying. Um, but again, Vivian Reed is another card where, okay, now mm. they, they want that card against you in all circumstances. And yeah. it's also killing your threat. Vivian is rough. I will give yeah. you that. I, yeah. I would highly recommend trying to play uh crackling drake with disdainful stroke mana open yeah and that's a nice segue to a card i think is actually pretty criminally underplayed right now and i keep seeing these control lists oftentimes with zero copies of disdainful stroke what are you doing why why is this card not in your deck have you not looked at the format and how important the four mana plus spells are right now i I don't understand not having some access to disdainful stroke yeah, the card is very strong in a lot of instances. I don't think it's good against everyone. And I I really love being able to pick and choose what two-mana counterspell is perfect for this week. And a lot of the times it's been Essence Scatter. Sometimes it's been Negate. But a lot of the times it's just Disdainful Stroke, man. Right. It, I think it's trending very hard to Disdainful Stroke. It started at Essence Scatter. Uh, my two-mana counterspell slot is now... Uh, uh, three-way split, one, one, and one in the main deck, Disdainful Stroke, Essence Scatter, Negate. And I wouldn't be surprised to just go with like the second Disdainful Stroke over the Essence Scatter. I think that's fairly reasonable since it's the larger creatures you mostly care about rather than the smaller ones, uh, things like Fine Broker. And then you still get to pick off an Experimental Frenzy when it's there in game one. Uh, but come post-board, I have a couple more copies. And I, I think that's important to have access to right now. Yeah, I do too. I, I lean a little too hard on Essence Scatter for stopping the early stuff that they're doing. Like Essence Scattering a Jade Light Ranger, I think is really important. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's kind of part of my removal package, you know? And Disdainful Stroke is just one of those things that it it kind of like locks it up. It, it creates these insane swing turns in the mid game when you get to right. like Chemister's Insight and Stroke something. But in the early game, you need the help. You're starting behind, and cards like Lightning Strike and Justice Strike were a big part of the defensive package of the deck, and I think those cards are just getting a lot worse. Uh, Mostly agree there, particularly in regards to Justice Strike, which has just continually failed to kill what I needed it to kill at a given moment. Uh, And is often... I mean, when it's great, it's great, but it fails you sometimes, and that's a scary spot for your removal spell to be in. It has a fail rate, and it's not easy to cast. That as well, yep. So I I like Lightning Strike, especially once you have Crackling Drake and Expansion. Uh, You have a lot of ways to actually just close the game. I think that card is completely fine, but I wouldn't play it in super large numbers. So to steal kind of a, a a talking point for myself in regards to this blue-white base of a control deck that is now splashing Expansion Explosion. I found myself really struggling with the two-drop removal slot, which for blue-white decks has consistently been filled by Seal Away. I am not comfortable playing that card right now. It feels like a mistake to do so, and it leaves you very vulnerable in a lot of spots. Do you think I'm overreacting to its vulnerability, or do you think you have to make some concessions and play what may be on their face slightly weaker spells? Uh... I think if you're getting to the point where you're playing Gideon's Reproach or whatever, you should probably just not be blue-white base. Okay. But 
like Siloe is definitely vulnerable. I mean, it is vulnerable to things like Conclave Tribunal. It's vulnerable to Vivian Reed. People are going to have Knight of Autumns or Reclamation Sages potentially. I do think it is not very good. And especially since all the, or not all, but most of the creatures that are getting back are value creatures. So it's, right. it's kind of devastating. But if you're playing against a bunch of Steamkins and Rekindling Phoenixes, then Sealaway is great. But for the most part, I like the versatility of Lightning Strike. And I think that Clarion is super nice. So I don't really see a reason to not be blue-red base instead of blue-white base. Okay, fair enough. That's about it. But uh, yeah, I, I think that the Golgari decks are getting better. And we've kind of reached this point where people have found a bunch of different versions for them. Maybe they don't have uh, great sideboard plans or anything, but Jeskai is still in the experimental phase where it can certainly get tuned to beat up on Golgari, at least a little bit more. Yeah, I, I, it's still finding its legs in a lot of ways, and there's a lot of things to be explored. You know, you see people leaning harder on Drakes, leaning harder on Niv-Mizzet in some instances. Uh, I, I don't think we have the best build of Jeskai yet, whereas I think we might have like the three best builds of Golgari very close to figured out. Even if they look different from each other, I, I think they're all just three very good decks yep. and are getting fairly tuned at this point. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, Teferi is almost certainly just one of the best cards, if not the best card against them straight up. So right. I do against think that, everyone in most instances, well, Teferi yeah, is that too. an incredible card. That too. So I do think that Jeskai is mostly like the natural foil to Golgari. I think that uh, the mono red decks need a lot of help. I think that like just going from the like top down list on MTG Goldfish, I think that Boros Angels is exactly the deck that Golgari was built to beat up on. Yep. Yep. And and then we have Grixis Control, which I think is well, it's like Grixis Midrange, really, but. Uh, I, th I think that that is one of the decks that could end up being a sleeper pick to actually combat Golgari. I want to hear you say more about that because it's not a deck I've played with very much. Uh, these kind of like Grixis spell decks, as I like to call them, don't often appeal to me. But I recognize the card quality is really high here. You have access to a card I'm really high on in Disdainful Stroke. And I think Thought Erasure... Uh, applied judiciously and carefully is a very good card in those matchups as well. You can kind of deal with value creatures before they become value creatures. Obviously, there's some issues with, you know, things in the graveyard don't remain in the graveyard in that deck. They often come back. Right. Uh, but but still, timely use of Thought Erasure in combination with a clock, which I think is a very big part of the equation, uh, pays some dividends for sure. Yeah, with, with how removal light the Golgari decks are and how heavy they are just relying on their top end, like their four, five, six mana cards, I think that, yeah, cards like Thought Erasure and Disdainful Stroke are super powerful. And trying to potentially get under them with Thief of Sanity and Nicol Bolas could be really strong, especially if you're able to start with Thought Erasure and maybe take out like their lone Chupacabra. Uh, I, I don't think... Bolus is particularly great against the Chupacabra deck, uh, just in general, as far as like how it lines up and everything. But if you're also playing Thief of Sanity, I think it gets a lot better. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think we talked a little bit about the explosive draw of Thief of Sanity into Bolus into... Uh, back then we were talking 
Doom Whisperer. I don't know if these decks are still playing Doom Whisperer. Uh, what's your take on Doom Whisperer and this archetype? Should it be included still? Uh, it's another one of those cards that is a must kill. And I think against these Golgari decks that have like six removal spells, then... That's what you want. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you could make a, an argument for Dream Eater, but I think it is just much worse than Doom Whisperer across the board right now. Uh, like Dream Whisperer is maybe a little bit stronger against Control, but Doom Whisperer against Mono Red is fairly incredible. And I think they're both good against Golgari, at least the way that they're built now. So I think it's kind of a push there. So I would try and Doom Whisperer. Okay. That's the way I would lean as well. Uh, one mana makes a world of difference, and that's a dramatically accelerated clock, which I think is going to be important for this deck. And one of the things I would seize on, again, not a ton of reps with this deck under my belt, but my instinct is that you want to end games quickly. You don't want to mess around uh, in mid-range veil, because I, I do think you'll eventually get outvalued by the Golgari deck once they get their Planeswalkers online, um, You know, once their snowball starts rolling they'll beat you in the long game in most instances. I, I think you have a mid-game window where you're really dominant and you have to push really hard in that mid-game window. I agree completely. I mean, not only is there an issue of you potentially getting outvalued, but there's also an issue of them slipping a threat through because Grixis does not have super clean answers to things. Mm -hmm. So you could have Disdainful Stroke and they cast Find, right? And then you, you just kind of get blown out in ways like that. So you have these good ways to potentially disrupt them and get rid of their best cards. You can ignore their little explore creatures by uh, playing some smaller sweepers or just having like a 4-4 bolus as a blocker. But at some point, they're going to stick get something through. You know, they're going to stick something and then you're in trouble. Right. I feel obligated to mention carnage tyrant in this context as well i can't oh, yeah. really hide on it in one instance and then ignore its existence in another uh this deck has carnage tyrant issues and that's not to say it's completely cold i mean you can thought erasure before it comes down and you have eldest reborn in some numbers usually uh but it's an issue and it's it's a real issue uh and if the format is pushing things very hard towards carnage tyrant I'm hesitant to embrace this deck. I'll say that. Yeah. At I, least I mean, you're at least your Doom Whisperer can trade, right? That's another right. huge point in favor of the card. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say too. It's like, well, you do have a six six, so that helps, but it I mean I guess if if they're just like, well, go, I'll just wait until I draw a find or draw a chupacabra or whatever, and then you start surveilling, I think you're in a pretty good spot. But hmm. yeah, if if they th their deck is built to be able to potentially clear the way, right? So Right, right. It is not a lock, but I do think that Grixis is just one of the few decks that can actually go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Golgari grinding you out, and I think that they have a lot of good threats that Golgari isn't necessarily set up to, to beat, especially if you're main decking for Thief of Sanities, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you have a lot of card advantage and just general answers to what they're doing, so I, I think it, it's like an actual real fight, whereas Golgari is kind of trouncing everything else right now, so... Right. Right. I wouldn't necessarily say that Grixis is the best deck. I think I would still be more inclined to work on Jeskai, but I do think that if you want this kind of sleeper pick, that Grixis could be where it's at. Okay. Um, you, you touched on it very briefly. I, I mean, Boros Angels really doesn't merit any consideration right now as, as far as I'm concerned. I just want to make that clear. This does not seem like a deck that is designed to succeed in this metagame. I've seen versions getting to Teferi 
which I like. Yeah. And yep. Disdainful Stroke, again, an important card. Um, I, I'm getting there with you. I'm, I'm starting to believe you're doing something, which I'm now interested in. I don't know if you're doing the best version of your plan. Uh, I would want to see more mono red before I was heading down any Boros Angels type route. But I guess if it's very prevalent, mono red's very prevalent in your metagame, maybe you can do this blue Boros Angels thing. It's at least interesting. It is definitely interesting. I am just... Uh, I'm very hesitant to play Lyra right now. Too vulnerable. They're too vulnerable. Just vulnerable to everything. Chupacabra, Vivian, all the red decks are just loaded up with fight with fires and everything. They're right. Just playing a, a giant creature that doesn't give you immediate value, I do not think is a good idea. And that's kind of one of the reasons why Aurelia has been flopping as well. So yeah. the, the Jeskai versions that I've liked were the base red ones where, you know, you have chain whirler and rekindling phoenix because rekindling phoenix is actually good and it's like i would want to try and play that card and if you can add teferi on top of that like okay you actually have a a stable base of cards that are good against golgari and maybe you can make that work right it sounds like we're getting into trouble troubling mana realms at this point right where we're looking to still do history of banalia into rekindling phoenix type stuff obviously if you're going chain whirler then history of banalia is right out and you know, right. this is a different yeah. deck but um, yeah I, I never tried without chain whirler and just trying to play like all the mythic rares maybe mm-hmm. that's maybe that's a reasonable take i don't know yeah that's kind of where this deck started right it's just like here's the pile of mythics let's see what decks can do against it and a lot of decks couldn't do anything against it um but as the format has changed i, I don't think that's the case anymore yeah, but History Phoenix Teferi doesn't sound that bad. Powerful know. cards. Can't dispute that. Oh, yeah. We'll see. Maybe that that's that's much lower on the brewing list for sure. Yeah, yeah. We have to draw the line somewhere, right? Like, we can't build every single one of these decks. Yeah, History Benalia is just frequently the best card out of these white decks for me. Same. That's been my experience as well. I, I, maybe this is a good time to translate into probably the last of the big decks we haven't really talked about and that's green white uh yeah this this is the this is the big week one winner what happened uh i think a lot of what we expected to happen the the car the deck had some vulnerabilities and uh relied very hard on the snowball and when people prepared for the snowball it kind of got caught out and exposed as a little bit underpowered um, I had some success when I added fine to the list. I thought that amped the power level appropriately, got me some more outs, but I ultimately realized I was playing a worse version of Golgari as the Golgari list got tuned. Maybe at the time I asserted it, it was fine, but as Golgari got better, I, I realized I was just falling further and further behind. That's legit. Yeah, I, I don't really think we are in a position where we want to be playing for migration for March, I think. There's just too many Clarions and things of that nature to just clean everything up. And Tristani is just kind of the army in the can, army in a can type of card that you want to refuel, I think, after your board continually gets swept. So let me propose something to you. And this was not a version of this archetype I was initially high on. But so if you try and go value with Golgari, you're going to lose. It's It's a foolish approach. You can't do that. So... I'm kind of interested, and it has these vulnerabilities that you're mentioning right now, but maybe you can transition away in post-board games. I'm kind of interested in going as hard as possible into the tokens plan, going as wide as possible. Like you said, four Sapperly migrations uh, for March, and I want to steal this from Nick Price because I think he's 
maybe onto something here. Song of Fraley. Prince. Prince, I'm sorry. Prince. Nick Prince, I'm sorry. I, I do think I know a Nick Price from somewhere else, but Nick Prince, you're correct. Um, Song of Fraley's, a way to just get on board really quickly and end the game before Golgari can establish any kind of realistic end game. What do you think of this approach? Does this have legs right now? I do. I'm just worried about the sweepers that people are almost certainly going to have post-board, but then I looked at the top eight of this PTQ and it's like, they really didn't have a lot. No, and the Golgari decks didn't, was... didn't pack sweepers at all. O- almost to a person, they they had no uh, golden demises in their sideboard. I think there's like three total in the top eight or something like that. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, so to that point, if they can't handle a wide board, then yeah, by all means, like they're just going to get crushed by you. But I just feel like I get golden demised and ritual of sooted all the time. They always have it. <laughs> Man, they always have the one. Right, right. Well, I mean, there is still fine finality. That's why I do think like song is important because you need to end the game before you get to finality range. Otherwise, you then have to set up, you know, instant speed marches. And those are quite small following a finality. And you're kind of all in once you go down the Sapperly migration route. So there are some hurdles, but I'm more interested in that approach than the more mid-rangey approaches that the format started at. I'll say that. Okay, no, that's legit. I do think that Tristani is still very strong. Uh Conclave Tribunal, I think, is probably the card that is at the weakest, where you don't necessarily want to answer anything specific from the Golgari deck, and it feels like a virtual mulligan a lot of the time. So if you're going down this route where you are this resource-based kind of combo-y token deck, right. then I think Tribunal is probably the card that you want to shave on. Yeah, it doesn't snowball, right? Whereas almost everything else in your deck snowballs. And actually, I'm just going to throw this out there real quick because I had this idea. The... Convo creatures along with experimental frenzy are very interesting to me. Like if your whole deck just snowballs through itself and there aren't that many great convo creatures and that's the real problem. But if you find some way to make this work and just generate velocity and rely on these things like Vivian, we've talked about to be able to manipulate the top of your deck, I could see spots where experimental frenzy in conjunction with convo creatures is a very, very powerful strategy. Although I tend to say that about everything with experimental frenzy. So it shows you yeah. where that card's at. I mean, Song of Freilis is pretty strong with that card too, but how how deep do you need to go? You know, like in order for your creatures to be convoked or things to be cast off Song of Freilis, you're going to need some semblance of a board position anyway. So is Are you just winning more? Experimental Frenzy better than a Loxdon or a March or a Tristani at that point? Yeah, fair question, for sure. I mean, you, you could just go off and like play out your entire deck and uh, almost certainly... Golgari will not be able to beat that, but is that entirely necessary? Right, right. Good point. I mean, may, maybe it allows you to come back, so there there could be a rationale behind that, but mm-hmm. mysteries. Yeah, too many mysteries right now, and we're not going to solve them all this week, but I, I think we have laid out some paths and have kind of you know spewed what we're thinking about right now and where our heads are at. I mean, if you had to play this weekend, what deck do you think you're playing right now? Uh, if I if I was playing modern, I'd be playing Arclight Phoenix. Okay, so let's let's <laughs> presume you're playing uh, standard. I could see playing Golgari, like that is definitely possible. I could see playing Grixis if I wanted to have fun, but if I were trying to win, I would likely just make some changes to Jeskai. Okay. My two options would be something Jeskai-ish. I'm unclear whether I would lean heavy white 
or you know the more red blue base versions we've seen floating around and then golgari i'm exploring militia bugler right now as an ad uh it's it's not yeah that's dude that's that's another take that I want to explore. Like, Bugler Tristani is nice. Yeah, so so my white cards are four Bugler, one Knight of Autumn, one Tristani. And there's also an Azoni on the top end. And you have still your Chupacabras and your Rangers. And I'm playing uh, seven Mana Elves. I have four Lanor Elves, three Druid of the Cowl. So not going as hard as the full 12 package. But we're getting to the top end reliably. Uh, again, using Karn as opposed to Veraska, making sure we have a proactive turn three play that's really dominant and just never running out of gas. Like Militia Bugler chaining through itself and getting you what you need in any given situation is really appealing to me. Uh, and then I'm going hard on Carnage Tyrant out of the sideboard, three Carnage Tyrants. I'm interested in that deck. It seems really promising to me. Um, but also just base versions of Golgari leaning a little bit harder on Karn. I, I think that might be the way to go. And main deck Carnage Tyrant as well. I'm down with that. The thing that keeps me away from the Bugler versions, like the reason it's just been on my on the bottom of my list of things to do, is that you do all this stuff, you accumulate all this value, and then you just get destroyed by finality. Like finality plus anything else sets you so far behind that I think it's really hard for you to come back. Right. But the setup is you you have your own fine finalities, and it's like it's that classic battle of being able to put pressure on the board without overcommitting. Bugler contributes well to that. It's putting it's, resources It's a in tempo your head. thing, though. It, it is a tempo thing. It's a tempo thing, thing that I'm... You give yeah. up tempo for I'm, Militia I'm, Bugler. Well, no, no, no. I'm just worried about, like, them casting finality and then you being so far behind that, you know, you're you're gonna your refill is gonna be like playing a two power thing and a three power thing or whatever and then they're just gonna start going over the top of you with like Verasco or Carnage Tyrant or whatever they have at their top end so that is the thing that I worry about it's like you kind of want to kill them quickly but you also don't want to overextend and then if they have the finality anyway you can't really do anything I mean I guess like like we've been saying these decks aren't playing a ton of sweepers and a lot of the decks are only playing two fine finalities so right which seems maybe, like a mistake maybe me. it's yeah, I agree, but you know, maybe it's just a thing that that you can be doing. Well, this speaks a lot in favor of Azoni again, right? Like being able to rebuild instantly after a sweeper, and you know, putting ten creatures on board right off the bat uh, is really appealing. And and also just Carnage Tyrant being too big to kill with finality is also appealing. So maybe you need to emphasize yeah. the top end a little bit harder in a build like this. But I get what you're saying. There, there's. And that's the thing about Golgari is it squeezes you from so many angles. We're talking about a play a play pattern that you don't really have any winning outcomes in. You either don't overextend and you don't pressure enough and they just inevitability you, or you do overextend and you get wrecked by finality. So it's a really yeah. tough spot. The thing that you would really have to set up is like venerated locks on plus Tristani. Mm, just get big. Yeah, just like have some five power things. I mean, that's, that's like the only realistic way I can think of to keep Tristani alive unless you had the other weirdo green-white split card, but... Yeah, that's uh, that might be pushing it a little bit too far. I don't I don't like it, you know? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you could also just reload with that or march or something, but yeah. I don't, I don't like it. It's a tough puzzle to figure out, for sure. Yeah, that's, that's why it's just like, okay, I'm going to ignore all this stuff. I'm just going to jam to fairy... Uh, it, it has been working out so far. I've liked it. I mean, Golgari is certainly still very tough, but I haven't actually gotten around to trying Crackling Drake, and it seems like that's where everyone is going. So, 
I I feel like that is probably the correct way to go about things. Look at you being a, a little control mage. What's going on over there? Listen, man, I don't like I, I wrote about this last week. I don't think I have this aversion to control. I just think that it is it has been very bad. And all of the decks that I play just farmed control. You know, like all these people were trying to play control decks to like beat up on red black and stuff. And I still always beat them with red black. So why would I ever try and play things from the control side? Uh, because you probably would have beaten them from the control side as well, just so you know. But <laughs> yeah, maybe. But but like with red black, your 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 game plan is consistent, right? Right. And I understand. Control control has a lot of inherent weaknesses, mm -hmm. and especially playing control against good people when they're punishing your glimmer turns. I think that's when it all went downhill, you know. And red black doesn't really have that. It was just like, yeah, I just play my Mythic Rares and you lose. Cool. And I have a good sideboard plan. Yeah, the, the final version of Red Black, I think, was far superior to the final version of Blue White. And I think it had a much more palatable fail state, which is always important when you're trying to play long tournaments. You, you, you get to play your creatures at some point, and they're always very good. Even if you like miss a land drop for a few turns. I, I mean, I don't have to tell you. There's many times where you'll miss your fourth land drop for four turns, and then you're rekindling phoenix is still so good that it bails you out anyway and it doesn't even matter you can't say the same thing for control so no of course not but then again you look at people like mike sigress and oliver too who top eight in multiple grand prix with blue white and it's like oh okay you know maybe maybe this deck is consistent enough and good enough but it's it's also not one of those decks that you can look at where you're like oh you're like i definitely have a good chance to win the tournament whereas i think red black had a very good chance to win tournaments mm-hmm I understand. I think Blue White was very good at getting into the top eight, and then once you start playing against people who really know what they're doing, it's very tough. Fell off quickly, yeah. Yeah, and Jeskai just, it, especially with the addition of Crackling Drake, between like Teferi Surge, Crackling Drake, Defting Clarion, and Counter Spells, uh, I think that you have a lot of ways to interact with people that make it very difficult, which is kind of similar to what Golgari's doing, honestly. Yeah, it's nice that you're getting to participate in the early game, right? That's not something that the control decks have done recently. Uh, but having right. a reasonable three drop and a reasonable four drop, as opposed to just hope I make my five drop and then things will certainly get better, but I have to make it there. Uh, a very different stance to take where you have actually reasonable threes and fours. Yeah. And so I think things are a lot different for control now. And trying to build it as a pure control deck, I don't think is very viable. So... Uh, you know, we're just going down this route. And again, you have things like Lightning Strike, Explosion, Crackling Drake to actually just kill them too in case things aren't actually going your way. I think Chemister's Insight is a pretty big pickup too mm -hmm. uh, where it just gives you a lot of gas going into the late game. I think the counter spells are pretty nice. The mana's good actually for Jeskai, uh, which you can't really say the same thing for Esper because they're trying to play right. Sinister Sabotage and Ritual of Soot and everything. So I don't know. I like it. I think Jeskai's got a lot of a lot of good stuff going on for it. And I mean, I guess I am mostly a Jeskai person through and through. Like played a lot of Jeskai Black and then a lot of Jeskai Flash and stuff like that. So right, you know, it just kind of speaks to me. Yeah. Well, hey, if if you found a place you're comfortable, that's good. And I will certainly happily reap the benefits of you putting in hours under control. Usually it was me on the control side putting in the hours and figuring it out while you were off doing your thing. I'm I'm happy to have a, a partner on team control. Hell yeah. Well, uh, do you get to play in anything this weekend besides the modern tournament? Like, is there 
uh, PTQ you can play in or anything? No, there's no PTQ on, on Moto this weekend. Um, and the Modern Tournament is two days, actually. So possibly I would be playing Modern both days, assuming things go well. Oh, wow. Um, okay. But yeah, it looks like it's going to be a Modern weekend. And then next week will be some hard prep for Grand Prix New Jersey. I'm sure we'll check in with that come next week, and I'll let everyone know where I'm at leading into that event. Yeah, man, that's red. Let's do it. Let's let's get you queued in Jersey. I would love it. Let's let's build the best damn Jeskai deck we can possibly build. Uh, you're you're speaking my language right now. All right, I'm in. Uh, question of the week comes from Matt Nelson, and he was wondering what was the experience you had playing Magic that brought you closest to the people around you, either at a PTQ, Pro Tour, or whatever it was. I like this question because it made me smile as, as soon as I read the question and I thought back to a time. Uh, this was under the old PTQ system and I qualified the first week of the season, which was nice, obviously. Um, very exciting. But then, but then you have to sit out for the rest of the season. Right, right. But right. you still went to the tournaments, right? Uh, a few times. I didn't go to all of them. It wasn't like I went okay. every weekend. But yeah, a few times when it was convenient to do so, I still went to tournaments and, you know, watch friends play or just hung out. But I, I qualified very early and my friends were playing throughout the season and I kind of qualified and didn't really know what I was going to do in terms of a team or, you know, I didn't have any real plans for what we we're going to do going forward. And uh, my friends, Max Brown and Dan Jordan were playing throughout the entire season and they were living with my brother at the time. So when I would go over to my brother, I'd see them. We talk about the format um, you know, just a lot of back and forth and, and they were both getting so close over and over and over. And then one of them queued in the middle of the season, like, great, I have someone to work with. This is really exciting. And then I don't remember who qualified the last week of the season. I think it was Max. Uh, he qualified as well. So now the people I was talking about with the game and had been watching, you know, just toil in the PTQs, hoping we could all work together, uh, made it. And it was kind of just an awesome thing to see. Uh, I got to work with a team that I was mostly really excited to work with. We added someone who shall not be named on this podcast uh, <laughs> late in the process, who I certainly wish we had not added. But uh, for the most part, it was a very positive experience. Did pretty well at the Pro Tour as well. And just thinking back to like having your entire group find success under that PTQ system, or even the current PTQ system, it, it didn't really have anything to do with the system. It was just all of my friends that I was working with achieving the same goal and being able to work together come the pro tour it was awesome it was a really great thing to see and that's what i always think of uh you know a, a really i was as happy for their qualifications as i was for my own and that's what really made it right. special yeah that's kind of the dream right and now in in theory that could happen through the team tournaments which i think is really cool yeah. like if if one of you qualifies you all qualify but those things are so hard anyway, because, you know, three of the top four slots are going to the same five teams or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of awkward, but yeah, I, I can definitely relate to similar stories where every pro tour was super exciting based on, you know, who qualified, who didn't and getting to uh, sweat the PTQs when I was already qualified and root for my friends and see them qualify and stuff was, was always awesome. And it you, you kind of lose some of that once it's like, you know, you're gold or you're platinum and you start working with a bunch of other people who are gold and platinum. It's just like kind of a given that you're all going to be qualified because TRGR. 
Yeah, I, I feel real bad for you in that situation. That sounds real devastating. No, I know. Listen, man, I'm just saying that, like, I don't, I don't get those feel good moments, no, no, right? That, that you know. did, and I'm not, I'm not trying to complain here or whatever. I'm just saying that, like, you know, we just kind of lose some of that. Right. But it's a cool part of the uh, experience for, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And for for me, I think the the thing that brought me closest to people in general wasn't. I mean, like the magic tournaments mattered, right? They were the catalyst for getting us out of the house and getting us all together and everything. But it was it was always the road trips, you know, mm. just sharing stories, talking about your tournaments, uh, uh, gossiping about random stuff, talking about magic formats, life, whatever. And that was like when you're trapped in a car with someone for six hours, like you don't really have anything to do except bond with those people, right? Yeah. No, that's very true. And, and I can remember a ton of situations where like you were put into a situation with someone you didn't know all that well and you're about to drive oh, eight yeah. hours and then you just hit it off with them and you're like, this person's awesome. And you spent eight hours just, you know, yeah. shooting the breeze back and forth. So one of one of my current roommates, uh, Andrew Veen, I knew a long time ago from uh, Midwest PTQs like around St. Louis. And we ran into each other at a GP in Portland a few years later because he was living there and then... Uh, when I started working at Wizards of the Coast, he started working at Wizards of the Coast like a little bit later. And it was just like, man, our paths keep crossing. This is weird. And there was a, a weekend where we just drove down to Portland for a GP or PT or something. And it was just me and him. We were like the only people who were interested in going. And just that that car ride with me and him, it was just like, okay, yeah, like we were we were friends, we were acquaintances. And, and now we're, you know, he's like one of my top five favorite people right. because of that car ride. And magic magic just does that to people especially when you just have that that commonality that thing that you can always fall back on and talk about i think it's just super incredible and uh yeah now now it's like you know staying in hotels with people like that happens a lot where it's like you know getting to stay with you and todd anderson in, in toronto when i haven't uh, spent that much time with you two in close proximity in a while i think is really awesome yeah yeah and you know what's something we don't talk about a lot is that in general context, it is difficult for people of our age. We're both like mid thirties. It's really hard to make friends in just like the oh, yeah. world. Like it doesn't work that way. It's hard to form those kind of bonds because you're not put in positions like that where you spend a bunch of time with someone and you really get to know them. But magic gives you the opportunity to do so. Uh, and I find that really cool and really exciting. And one of the things I'll never take for granted about the game. I, I always yeah, like who I'm it exposes me to. My, some of my close friends stay the same, but a lot of them end up, you know, rotating in and out as like our, our lives change and our past diverge and everything. And people like Andrew Brown and Michael Majors were people who I met somewhat recently. And now there, there are people like Jonathan Rossum who are up and coming where it's just like, I really like this kid, you know, like I really get along with this kid and I want to hang out with him more. And I, yeah, I don't think if I were a normal person, I would be able to have those same experiences where I keep meeting new awesome people. Having lived the normal person life for a period of time, I, I never made bonds the way I did through magic. Uh, all of my non-magic friends go back many, many years and all of my new friends are only through magic. Like It's not that I didn't like people at law firms or I didn't like people in law school, we just didn't connect in the same way that I do with uh, magic players. And part of it is circumstances, I think, but also the commonality that you talked about is a really big part of that as well. Yep, absolutely. And I mean, that's 
part of the reason why we're still here, like one, one of the other questions this week was about, you know, like, why don't you go play like some different game or whatever, if you don't like the way Wizards is doing things. And it's like, well, I like this game and I like this community and all of my friends are from here. And I like, I don't want to leave this place. Right. Like this place is awesome. Yeah. It's a good game, man. <laughs> There's no other way to say it. it. It's a great game and there may be things wrong, but uh, a lot of stuff right as well that I, I I don't want to lose sight on. And I like that this was a very positive question, you know, given all that's been going on recently, there's still a lot of positivity here and we shouldn't lose sight of that. Absolutely. And uh, we're recording this a little bit early because I have to go hang out with Michael Majors today. I think it's, it's a very big deal and it needs to be done. So uh, since I'm a little sick, you can, you can sign us out because my throat can't take this. I got it. That's game. Good luck.